Is your family a success? Is there even a measure for family success? We think there is, and with a 20-year track record of success, we're going to show you how to bless your family with success in your health, relationships, and finances. I'm Steve Keen, and I'm Katie Keen, and along with some awesome guests, we are going to give you our secrets to family success. Welcome to Family Success Secrets. Welcome everyone. This week, we are so thrilled to bring to you a guest who has so much, so much valuable information and wisdom to share with you. Dr. Michael Tobin has been a psychologist and marital and family therapist for 47 years and an author since he wrote his first play at 11. Over the years, Dr. Tobin has worked with numerous families struggling with loss, divorce, and the challenges of raising children with mental and physical challenges. In every case, it's the same question. How do you find and express love when you're overwhelmed by the demands of circumstances? Dr. Tobin has been married to his soulmate, Deborah, for 47 years. They're the parents of four and the grandparents of 17. Four years ago, his beloved wife was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. They are all learning how to love and grieve Deborah, mom, and mama as she fades into the world of Alzheimer's. Michael, thank you so much for being here with us today. We are genuinely honored. As I am as well. So tell us about what led you into wanting to work with families. First of all, because I come from a family mm-hmm. and families always interest me. And mm-hmm. I think that it was when I entered the field of psychology in part, not in part, because of some of the my own challenges growing up in a particular family that, that I was both blessed and challenged to be born into. I actually wasn't the first thing I did as a psychologist. I was initially into a lot of group therapies. And then I think it coincided with actually the birth of our first child that both my wife and I decided we were more interested in family therapy. And family therapy was fascinating. We did a, both of us together did a five-year postdoctoral training program in Cambridge and where we worked with families behind a one-way mirror where we were supervised and by two experts in family therapy. It was a fascinating and terrifying experience. And I learned a lot about families and systems, which actually, because of what I learned from systems, has also enabled me to do work with organizations. I work with high-tech companies on leadership issues and organizational development issues because a corporation adheres to principles similar to families on a much larger scale. But that's for another discussion. Marriage in particular, because in a nuclear family, a couple are the, are the CEOs, the co-CEOs of a small organization. And as the leaders go, so goes the family. So I work a lot with couples as well. So over the span of 47 years, have you, have you noticed changes in, in family uh, structures, dynamics, interactions, the way these systems operate or anything like that? that anything like that jump into mind? At first, it's a fantastic question you're asking because the answer is a very big yes. Because as you as you know, that I mean, our culture has changed significantly since 1974 when I f- saw the first my first clients. It was a very different era, and so we've gone through many, many, many changes, and that's reflected in a therapist's office as well. Because of where I live, which is in Jerusalem, Israel, primarily I'm still working with your typical nuclear family. Let's say which would have been quite differently if, if from my practice in the States, where I dealt with much different kinds of family structures 
you know, including most often single parent families as well. So less single parent families now. Mm. And sometimes very large families as well, which makes things much more complex to say the least. There are a lot more dynamics when you have a large family. (laughs) We do. So over the years, I know you've seen so much. You've worked with so many diverse families. You've learned a lot about resilience yourself because of your experiences with your wife. A lot of the people who are listening, I'm sure, are experiencing many challenges in their own families. So can you speak to resilience? I think that one of the biggest challenges when, when a family has, let's say, a child in need or child with special needs, this can cause a huge amount of stress on a couple, on a relationship. And it can expose a lot of the fault lines in a marriage. And I think I would say, anecdotally, I don't have hard research, but I think it would probably, the hard research would probably support this. But I think that where couples have a strong connection, their ability to deal with challenging situations is so much more effective. They're a team working together supporting one another, discussing, and they both share a similar philosophy about their child. And when that's the case, couples grow in love with one another and with their child. If not, it could be very, very problematic for a relationship. So I would say that any couple with a very stressful situation of a child, whatever the situation may be, needs the time and, and place to work on their marriage as well and give time for their marriage to grow during as well as taking care of this difficult situation. Now, for many of those types of families, of course, they weren't expecting those challenges. They had no idea that it was coming. They just sort of get surprised with the news. Is there anything that they can do or what might you recommend that they would do beforehand? So let's say they're even before they are officially married, if, if, if they want to set themselves up for success, in general, but something like that would also certainly help out in the event that something did happen where they ended up having disabilities or things like that they had to work out. So how can a family, a brand new family, uh, or a family that's not quite yet, (laughs) how can they best prepare? Okay. I think that, first of all, I think that every couple needs to understand that marriage is a challenge. Mm -hmm. Sometimes people go into marriage thinking marriage is a solution. Marriage isn't a solution. It's a challenge. It's a challenge to grow. It's a challenge to bring, to grow emotionally, spiritually. It's also for some a nightmare. And I think that I would encourage any, any couple before they get married to understand what marriage really is. And I think that there's a wonderful uh, statement from a, a psychiatrist named Harry Stack Sullivan who said something about marriage, which I think is, this was, he probably said 60 years ago, which I think is true today marriage, any kind of a relationship. He said, a marriage succeeds when my partner's needs are at least as as important as my own. And I think that that is the basis of a very good marriage. He didn't say a marriage succeeds when my partner's needs are 100% important, as least as important as my own. I mean, marriage is a contract of giving and receiving. And unlike, say, parenting, where it's a one-sided deal, we give to our children, We don't expect our children to meet our needs. If we do, it's a big problem. But in marriage, there's a reasonable expectation that we give to our partner and we receive to our partner. But we have to understand how to do that. That's the art of marriage. And it's not something that you instinctively know unless you were blessed 
to have grown up with parents who have a brilliant marriage. And I would say that's the rare situation, not the common situation. So I would say, learn about marriage, read about marriage, understand marriage, and understand that this is an incredible opportunity for you and a challenge. So Now, I've heard many who would say that premarital counseling is is well worth it. Have you have you ever uh, done anything like that? You have an opinion on on premarital counseling? I think it's a fantastic idea. I really do, and I have done a lot of it. I have recently worked with. It wasn't exactly premarital; it was immediate marital. They didn't have any problems. They just came into me and said they were a very cute young couple in their early twenties. And I said, "So why are you here for to see me?" He said, "Well, they said this may sound strange, but." We really have a beautiful marriage so far. We've only been married a month. And I said, that's no, great. He said, but we both come from messed up families. And we don't, want to me- we don't want to replicate what our parents did. So we'd like to learn how to make a good marriage. Okay. I said, fantastic. I didn't see them very long. They were wonderful. And they know I, if they need to, they'll come back to me. Mm-hmm. And we talked about the art and science of a good marriage, what it takes a lot of it was meant for them to understand one another and understand their, their, I would say, their trigger points as well. And based on their own family of origin, the more that a person is self-aware, the more they understand themselves and what might trigger them, the better equipped they are to deal with the challenges of marriage. I help them with their communication skills, which are essential. They both had a tendency to avoid conflict. And I taught, taught them how to engage in conflict without getting into a panic and that this is a very normal process. And they're very successful. And they know if they need me, they know how to reach me. I also did a lot of groups uh-huh. on marriage as well, uh, marriage and marital educational groups where I was also focusing on foreign pre-marriage and newly married, some of the principles of what makes a good marriage. And, and how does that change if it does once the family, let's say, is going along and everything's going very well. And then out of the blue, all of a sudden, unexpected, whatever the case, there's a, a change in circumstances. There's a new diagnosis or a child is born into the family with disabilities or something like that happens. When, when it comes to those who would need that help, is it the same kind of thing, but now kind of like on an emergency basis or is there a different approach? Well, I think that you and I were just talking before we both were sharing our military experience. So you know that you simulate a lot before you go into battle, that you do a lot, a lot, a lot of as much as you can simulate a situation of distress, you try to do that. I would say that going back to what we were saying before, that a couple that have learned very good how to communicate with one another, have been able to identify how they feel, and they have already developed this foundation there's a much better chance that they will weather a, a difficult crisis. But, but actually, let's let's talk about something other than a crisis, because it's, quote unquote, a sort of a crisis, a mini crisis, just to bring your first child into the world. OK, you have these wonderful connections, just the two of you. Then all of a sudden, and this is often a challenge for men, wife is bonding, nursing with the baby and there's less time for him. And I think most couples have gone through that transition. Now, if the first child, which I have dealt with on numerous occasions, the first child is a handicapped child that needs an extraordinary amount of attention, that can be a real 
it's a huge change. It's a, it's a sea change for a couple. And sometimes they need help just to help get them through this transition. And that's a whole nother discussion because it's a child on steroids, so, so to speak, as far as crisis management is concerned. So big, 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 big challenge for a couple, to say the least. So I know we were talking previously and also in your introduction that your own family has also had to deal with a lot of change and challenge because of your wife's diagnosis. You know, how have you guys, you, your children, your wife, how have you managed that? It was it, it was and is a huge challenge. Also, not as sudden of a surprise, let's say, as someone who gives birth to a preemie with serious, serious challenges and handicaps. Yet it was, I would say that even though there were signs, I did a fantastic job of not noticing them because I didn't want to. Okay. To make a rather lengthy story shorter, we were trekking, Deborah and I were trekking, this is in 2018, November of 2018, it's actually three years ago. We were trekking into the Everest Base Camp. And along the way, I just noticed things that were peculiar. She was doing things that were not typical to who she is. She's a very, she's a very open person, but at the same time, I'm a very private person. And she was opening up, and there is a culture of of trekkers that you're very open with one another. Everyone's freezing to death and everyone is dealing with issues of altitude. So it's like a, you have this instant camaraderie and you communicate over a fire, you know, together, most intimate personal details of your lives. But I noticed that there was things that were peculiar about the way she was communicating. And what we thought, and we went, went to a doctor in a place called Namche Bazaar in about halfway up the, towards the Everest Space Camp. And he thought she had thyroid issues. But she was freezing. I mean, it's, it's very cold up there, but she was super freezing. And she had other sort of signs of thyroid. We came back, we came back to our home and we were at a cafe soon after we came back with our, our adult children. And someone came to the table, an old friend who we've known for over 30 years, and Deborah didn't recognize the person. And that was a wake-up call for all of us. And then we went and did many, many tests. And she was in the early stages of Alzheimer's. And because it is a neurodegenerative disease, she has deteriorated. There's a concept called ambiguous grief, which I think is also very relevant for your listeners. Ambiguous grief, if someone dies, there's a finality, there's a closure to that. When a certain when a person with Alzheimer's has many losses. One day can lead to a, a day, a no, one day after another, there's microscopic deficiencies from the previous day. And it's a very difficult process of grief to know how to deal with that. And, you know, I have lost my best friend, my life partner, my soulmate. I wouldn't say lost. That's probably overstating the case. Our relationship has changed significantly. And are my children have lost their mother. She was a tremendous role model. I have three daughters and a son. And I should say, we have three daughters and a son. And for my daughters, especially, they've lost a very special role model in their life. And I've sort of had to double as a mom and a dad to a great extent. In fact, after we finish this meeting today, we're having a family meeting on Zoom. All of our kids are fairly close, but we couldn't get together physically to discuss some of the developments. We're also sort of talking about how 
a few of us understand how to communicate to Deborah. And my youngest daughter and another one of my daughters is having more difficulty communicating. So there's a way that you need to communicate, how to attune yourself to somebody who's quite different than she used to be. But you can. I'll give you an example. I said to Deborah on Friday, I said, you know, I really need to your help. And I said, she, my wife was a yogi. She was one of the, she was an extraordinary yogi, you know, and teacher. And she was brilliant, really amazing at, at yoga. I said, I, I said, I'm not, you know, I haven't been working out much lately and I really need your help to teach me yoga. Now, she hasn't done any yoga for over a year now. And I wanted her to do yoga, but I was a win-win. I wanted to do it myself. So she said, sure, I'll help you. So on Saturday morning, we did yoga. Today, we did yoga. We went walking. She was helping me. Okay, I invited her into my world. And it would change things. There are ways of, of communicating to people with Alzheimer's. I've had this amazing, almost soul-to-soul connection with my wife. But I need time, and we need quiet to do it. And it's pretty amazing, even though it's in, I'm doing most of the talking like I am now. <laughs> I'm doing most of the talking and she listens and she likes that. So I, I got to say, or ask rather from the onset until now, or at any point in between, was there a point in which your wife was aware of things that were taking place, these these differences and inability to recall things. I don't know if 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 that is characteristic with everyone that has Alzheimer's or if it's person to person. I I don't know. So for the benefit of the group, I'll ask the question: Does the person with Alzheimer's realize it? And how do you help that person in addition to the rest of the family? It's a very, very, very uh, relevant question that you're asking, Steve. I think that, first of all, when it comes to Alzheimer's and dementia, there is not one way that people behave. A lot of it, I have to be careful when I say this. I said, I would say some degree, it mirrors the person's life prior to the illness. In other words, there, in my wife's case, it's 100% the case. Okay? She was always a very, she was a very assertive and gentle individual. And she was much more of a listener than a talker and very self-contained individual. Right now, and it's very interesting because we're doing a video series about her Alzheimer's and we interviewed, we interviewed her and me, our kids, and, and to talk about this whole process. And she said in this interview, very interesting how she, and she's pretty, you know, she's in what's called the middle stage of Alzheimer's, the three stages of Alzheimer's. So she's in the middle stage. And she said that my life is become simple. I don't want complexity anymore. It's very simple. I'm not saying she said it quite like that, but that was the message. She said, I want to be entertained. I don't want to be, you know, there solving people's problems anymore. She said, I can't anyway. And I like my life. It's very simple. And she's not anyone who's had emotional disruptions during her Alzheimer's, which can happen. People can become emotionally, they can get abusive verbally and physically. There can be a lot of very problematic symptoms for families. And I would say with Deborah, it's relatively easy because she's pretty much in her own world. She's extremely peaceful. And her favorite expression is, it is what it is. She said, I didn't ask for this. She said, because she is a real, you know, a believing individual. She said, this came from God. I didn't ask for it. I don't want it, but it's what I have to deal with. Sometimes I'm like, I have to even say to myself, is she real? Does she really believe that? 
because I think about myself. I I don't know if I could deal with it. I would, quite frankly, I mean, I'm being in the world of my mind and books, writing, all that is so important. I mean, who would I be? She seems really to be okay. So I can't say, because I wouldn't be okay with this. She seems she is. And I said, the hardest thing is, is that we suffer. She doesn't suffer. I really don't think she suffers. And we suffer because we're losing somebody. And I know that some Alzheimer's patients have this. They have the awareness, I'm losing my memory. I'm losing my cognitive functions. I can't calculate anything anymore. I can't think in a linear fashion anymore. If that happened to me, I mean, like, it would be terrifying. She's been a meditator for most of her life. She's like in a meditative state. It's uh, interesting. Nevertheless, it's a, not a friendly illness, to say the least. How have you helped your children through this process of the grieving? Because there are people who are in our age group who are going to be, you know, who are listening to this podcast, have their kids at home, but are also experiencing this with their parents. And, you know, what, what, how do you deal with that? How do you help them? Well, for one, I communicate with all of my children almost every day, okay? We don't always, a lot of time we laugh together, we enjoy one another, because you you can't make a profession of suffering, you know, to quote Deborah, it is what it is, and we still have to get on with life, and we have to take care of ourselves. So a lot of it, we still have a lot of fun together as a family. Individually, I deal with my youngest daughter who's grieving a great deal. All of my children are. And I'll tell you just a very poignant story. My son is a very, he's a businessman. He's a very macho sort of guy. He's sensitive, but he's not emotional. And he's in the business, he has his own business and he's a real estate developer. So they just closed on a huge project. And he was um, driving from the, after they signed the deal, and all of a sudden, he tells me he starts to cry. And he pulls over to the side of the road and he said, you know, he was, my son was a terrible student in school. He could not sit still in school. They, without saying it, they were saying he's stupid. Okay. <laughs> Don't get me started on educational systems and how they label. At any rate, by the way, he did a Rubik's Cube in five minutes when I bought him a present when he was 10 years old. Okay, that's how stupid he is. At any rate, he just didn't couldn't stand in, in class. And he said he remembered his mother saying to him, and this is important about messages as we as parents give to our children. She said to him, his name is Aaron. She said, Aaron, I want you to know I believe in you so much and you're going to succeed. I promise you. And she went on and on telling him what his attributes were. So he was remembering that. And he pulled to the side of the room and he started crying and remembering these things. So mm. the messages we give our children, the positive, loving messages go along deeply into their psyche. And it's amazing how much they can impact their development. So my wife did a tremendous service to her, her to our son by giving him that message. Yeah. Wow. I hope all the parents listening will take that to heart and start doing that with their children. That's amazing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. One generation further down the road, though, how about, let's say, if there are grandchildren and they're very young and maybe conceptually don't get the medical problem that's taking place, but they, they see it, they know it, 
something's not the same. Maybe even something's not right. How do you help a kid like that? Well, first of all, every single one of our grandchildren from my say age three up, we go three to 17, okay? Know that from the 17 year old, they know about Alzheimer's as, as they go down in age, but they know that they call her mama. They know that mama doesn't remember their names, okay? And they know that mama can't do what she used to do, which is spending time with each one, teaching them English, teaching them, you know, math, doing, you know, really helping them in school, helping their, well, the, the, for my, for our children, helping them when, when they were very young, doing a lot of babysitting, doing the kinds of things that grandmothers do. They understand that there's something different about her and her ability to be around grandchildren. She's very sweet, but she, after about 15 minutes, she'll walk away and just do her own thing. She doesn't have the, I don't know, patience is the right word. She just can't concentrate on all of the chaos of children. You know? and, <laughs> really, I mean, let's face it, they can make a lot of noise. They're adorable and wonderful and delicious, but they're noisy and they're chaotic. So I, I think that the older children feel the loss greater than the younger ones. So it sounds like really keeping everyone having open communication. It sounds like it's been a real key for you guys and for any families who are going through this, that, you know, if their family's not already having open communication, that'd be maybe a good place to start, do you think? A hundred percent. And I think that that I think that that we have a family which has we communicate a lot. I have a kind of one of the principles I have is you don't walk away with anything unfinished. You deal with stuff. Mm-hmm. Okay. Be straight. Maybe it's some some of the things that I learned from my own childhood, which is something I always say to the people I work with, you learn what to do or what not to do from your family of origin. So one of the things that I definitely wanted to do is there are no secrets in the family. You talk about stuff, you deal with things. If they're hard, you don't internalize, you talk. Okay, I don't want any resentments built up. You're angry? Say it. What's bothering you? Be straight. And then we can work it out. And And that's sort of the motto. So we talk about stuff and we talk about, I mean, I don't, I I, want to be honest and real to the people who are listening, which is, in other words, last week was a hard week for me with Deborah, very difficult week. And I talked to my kids. I said, you're not. So I said, I know your lives are very, very busy and you have your own kids, but you have to remember you have a unique situation. Can't forget your mother. You need to come around more often. And I said, you need to understand. I said, I also need the support. Okay? Sometimes it's really hard, really difficult. Yeah. There are multiple ways that you that a person who is married to a, a spouse with Alzheimer's has great difficulty. I'm fortunate in that I know enough emotional processes, like the process of grief, that I know how to deal with. Many people don't have that kind of experience. So they go through, they find themselves furious at their spouse with Alzheimer's. And you can't be furious at someone with an illness over which they have no control. That's not fair, but it's a natural reaction. They need help. That's the case. They need to understand how to deal with this very painful situation. Absolutely. And definitely, I think if they need to reach out for professional help, that would be really, really wise because, you know, a lot of people in our generation don't necessarily have strong families around them. 
And so I think reaching out to someone who does know those techniques and can help teach you proper communication would be very, very healthy. Now, you wrote a book about your life with Deborah, and I'd love for you to share more about that with our audience. My book was actually inspired by Deborah's diagnosis. It's not about her diagnosis, and it's not a, a, you know, a long story about our life together of 47 years. It's actually, it's a book is a memoir of a six mo- seven-month period in our life from 1980, May of 1980, to sort of the end of 1980, about November, December of 1980. And we had both finished our, PhD, our doctorates, and we wanted to take a break, and we decided to go on an around-the-world bicycle trip. And we never quite made it around the world, but we got pretty far. It was an extraordinarily transformative experience. The book is it goes into the heart of first level relationship because you want to test a relationship, ride a bicycle in freezing rain day after day in the same small little tent. And there were many interesting challenges in, uh, about our relationship and how to build a relationship, how to deal with the, deal with stress physical, psychological stress. It was also extraordinary because we had so many amazing serendipitous encounters with people. And without giving away the story, because it's a very interesting story, the the bicycle trip took us throughout Europe. We encountered, this is 1980, so that's 41 years ago. So we encountered, just again, very serendipitously, we encountered people who had survived the Holocaust. Just that kept happening because throughout Europe, it was very fascinating. And I write about that. And also because when we started this trip, Deborah comes from a Lebanese Christian background and her grand, all of her grandparents were born in Lebanon. We wanted to go, she wanted to go to Lebanon. This is Lebanon during the Civil War era. And I mean, Lebanon's never been peaceful since then. But so we sort of had a window where there were presumably or supposedly no fighting. And we spent 10 days in Lebanon tracking down her family, which was extraordinary. The fact, I would say, well, I'm here to talk about it. There was a lot of fighting. We were, it was quite an experience, to say the least. And then on to Israel. And it was, a, it was a story about relationship. It's a story about love. It's a story about identity. And if I can brag, I've won a couple of literary awards so far for it. And, so it was, I, I, to tell you, you know, so, you know, it sounds like sort of new age kind of mumbo jumbo to say it, but I really think that I felt like the book was written through me, not by me. It was like something just sort of happened. And I think it was part of it, a way of working out my own grief towards Deborah's, what was happening with Deborah, and also as a kind of a testimony to an extraordinary woman. And she... I think she still is, but she certainly was one of the most extraordinary women that I have ever encountered, made for me the most extraordinary. A real role model to me of, of who a woman can be. Very strong, fiercely independent, at the same time able to connect and make relationships. So I'm very blessed. Absolutely. Very blessed. I know. This book sounds like we'll have a lot in it for us all to gain. And I'm very excited to read it. And I hope our audience will pick it up because it sounds like if you want to learn about resilience and character and connection and communication. I think you actually said the name of the book. Writing the Edge is the name of the book. A Love Song to Deborah. Okay. You can find it on Amazon, find it on many different places. Writing the Edge, A Love Song to Deborah. You can also get to it from my website as well, which is 
drmichaeltobin.com. So yeah, it was so it was really, uh, and I feel very blessed that I was able to do this. Yeah, and we'll be sure to put a link in our show notes too for your website and to the book so that everyone can go ahead and get a copy of it because I know how reading stories like that can really connect people and heal and teach. So that's a really awesome. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, as we discussed, the, the way we like to, to bring our session to a close is, is to ask you to share anything that you would like with the audience from either your personal experience or your profession, uh, something that would be like an immediate help, an immediate blessing to families. And we've hit a lot of those already, uh, but something that, that might add a measure of success to a family if they institute it right away. I'm thinking actually about a situation, individual, like I hate to call it a situation, a couple that I worked with who have a severely, severely handicapped daughter. I mentioned before, she was born premature and she's on a respirator. She's not non-ambulatory. She has, she now, she has lived 14 years with multiple complications to say the least. And this is one of those, you mentioned before, one of those shocking crises. It was their first child as well. And I was working, I worked with him as a couple, and I also worked with the, with the husband as well, individually. And he was really struggling. And so I said to him, do you want to institutionalize your daughter? I said, because you understand you have a lifetime of challenge ahead of you. I wasn't advocating that. I wanted to find out where he was holding and he said, no, I don't. said, then you have to choose your situation. That this is your choice to be with her and to love her to the best of your ability. If you can make that choice to accept this difficult situation and to embrace it, you will grow and you will succeed and you will benefit. It's the hardest thing in the world. And it's hard for me as a person who had four healthy children, thank God, 17 healthy grandchildren, to say that to another person, yet it's true. And that's basically the source of resilience. You need to choose the situation you are in and embrace it. Otherwise, you're going to suffer terribly. It's the worst kind of suffering is a suffering of meaninglessness. When you suffer and you have meaning to your suffering and your challenges, you grow. But I believe it's a question of you have to make the courageous step of choosing. So I would say whatever your situation is, Choose it, embrace it, and make it work to the best of your ability. That is wonderful. And it has just a phenomenal number of applications Mm -hmm. in a person's life, regardless of of who you are and what your situation is, especially if you're in a situation like we've discussed today where you have a dependent, either a child or a spouse or a parent or somebody that, that you are lovingly caring for, you're not doing that for no reason. You, there's that choice that, that Michael discussed and embracing the difficulty, mm-hmm. and, but making a conscious choice that that's what you're going to do it and really going after it wholeheartedly. It sounds like that will, that will be a blessing to you in the end. Difficult? Absolutely. And uh, we can fast forward the same couple will today say about this child is that she is the, a blessing in their lives. That's beautiful. They taught her, she taught them how to love. Absolutely. I bet she did. Mm. Well, we cannot thank you enough for sharing all of this. It's a pleasure. pleasure. Yes. I know you will have blessed so many. You have blessed us. 
And we look forward to talking to you again and to getting hold of your book. So thank you. Thank you for sharing your time. As they say in the palm, namaste. Thanks for listening and spending time with us today. If you know anyone who could benefit from this podcast, we would be honored if you would share it. Please rate, review, subscribe, and download. Head over to podcast.familysuccesssecrets.com to have a top-rated Family Success Secret sent straight to your inbox. We look forward to spending time with you again next week during our next episode. See you then. Bye, everyone.